This episode of The Candid Frame is sponsored by the Charcoal Book Club. The Charcoal Book Club is the monthly subscription service for photo book enthusiasts. Working with the most respected names in contemporary photography, Charcoal selects and delivers essential photo books to a worldwide community of collectors. Each month, members receive a signed first edition monograph and an exclusive print to add to their collections. Join the club by visiting charcoalbookclub.com and use the promo code THECANDIDFRAME at checkout and receive a 10% discount on your first membership payment. What are you willing to do to make a photograph? Assuming that you have the equipment and experience you need, how far would you go to make that special image? How much time would you dedicate for the possibility of making that photograph? For British wildlife photographer Will Berard Lucas, it was a matter of years until he was finally able to photograph one of Africa's rarest big cats, the Black Leopard. In his book, The Black Leopard, he discusses the details of this challenge, as well as his many years creating stunning images of the continent's legendary animals, including lions, elephants, and more. He shares how his inventions of his unique camera buggy and traps opened the door to many of his classic photographs, including those of the Black Leopard. This is Ibarian X, and welcome back to The Candid Frame. I'm enjoying the book. Oh, good. Thank you very much. Yeah. I commend you on your writing. It's, it's, it's a nice read. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, I mean, I was able to put a lot of effort into that side of it because I wrote it during lockdown. So suddenly everything else I had planned was sort of out the window and I was able to dedicate <laughs> a really nice amount of time to, to yeah, just, I guess, working the text, getting it nice and concise. Yeah, I think it was a good time that if you were putting some sort of project off that didn't require you being out somewhere. Yeah, exactly. It was a good time to, to knock something like that out. It was a really good pro- yeah project to keep me occupied, that's for sure. Well, first off, welcome to the show. Really glad to have you. Thank you. Yeah, your your pursuit of making this uh, this image of this black leopard is really fascinating. I certainly want to spend a good amount of time talking about that, but I thought I, I, I'd start because in reading it, there were just a whole variety of challenges that you that you faced in terms of being able to make those images, and you know you've had a lot of experience photographing a lot of different wildlife in a variety of different circumstances. Mm-hmm. What do you think were some of the the skills and sort of the, the talents that you developed over the years that you feel like were invaluable towards making this set of particular images happen? Yeah, well, it's funny. Like, I feel like almost my whole life had been leading towards making these images. And actually, my journey towards achieving them started you know more than a decade ago and so it was really as I was getting into wildlife photography that I started really experimenting with different equipment and different techniques and started this journey where I found myself often developing equipment that would allow me to get these shots that I had in mind and often making up techniques and as I was doing this um, I became fascinated with working at night and photographing nocturnal wildlife I became really interested in camera traps, which we can talk about some more. You know, all of these things that I'd, I'd sort of focused on during the years, when I when it came to this Black Leopard project, suddenly they were all applicable. And, you know, really, it was a culmination of so many strands of my life coming together. I guess just pursuing the opportunity in the first place, you know, I'd I set myself up in Kenya, really. I'd been working on some camera trapping projects in Kenya. I developed a whole network of contacts and friends who were sort of, I guess, you know, who I could sort of get ideas from in terms of projects and things. And so this journey where I'd um, focused increasingly on Africa and then more recently on Kenya kind of culminated in me hearing about this black leopard and then having all the means in place to actually try and do something about it. Because, you know, if it had been in some random country, I the logistics involved in just, you know, getting out there with all the camera gear for something so speculative, you know, it probably wouldn't have happened. And, you know, to be honest, when I heard about this leopard and actually went out there to try and photograph it, for me, it was kind of so speculative and kind of such a long shot that I actually didn't expect to achieve the results 
to capture anything. But fortunately, because I was in the right place at the right time with my equipment and my car and things out there, I was able to, uh, you know, justify giving it a go, seeing what I could get. And, you know, if worst came to worst, it, you know, it was it was worth giving it a go to get something so special. But, um, you know, obviously, uh, you've got to take these sort of chances and and I guess back yourself to to try and do something special like photograph this animal that is so rare. And uh, yeah, just uh, it all came together, as I said. When I was reading about the time you were in India Mm. photographing another type of black leopard, one of the things that really fascinated me and that I really had never thought of was having a sensitivity to the calls of the various animals that could be preyed on. You know, the birds, yeah. some of the other monkeys or uh, other other mammals. And that was fascinating uh, for me. Mm-hmm. I had never really heard about a photographer paying attention to those things as a cue that a predator is, is nearby. I really would love for you to expand on that. Yeah, for sure. I guess photographing wildlife in Africa, it is often the predators that people most... Uh, want to see photos of that people get most excited about but you know the density of predators compared to other animals is actually very low you know for every hundred prey species that might be able to support one predator so often when you're driving around or walking around you know you're very unlikely to see a predator but you do see a lot of these other animals during this it was mostly during this year that i spent living in zambia Um, i spent a lot of time with guides and a lot of their bushcraft rubbed off on me during that year and i learned how to listen to the calls, the various calls from different creatures and recognize which of the calls were potentially an alarm call. And by listening out for those particular calls, particularly from fairly common species like monkeys and guinea fowl and um, antelope, certain antelope, by really just uh, keeping an ear out for those sounds. Often if you hear that, that animal has seen something, usually usually a predator, and by following the calls, not always, but sometimes, you know, you get lucky and you, you find the predator that the, the animal had been spooked by. In, in the book, you talk about getting information from people who lived in the area or, or worked in the area that mm. they had spotted this big cat. And this was sort of a sort of a lead in for the possibility of you being able to photograph it. Uh, but what, while you were there, there were other things that you were looking at, like like paths, animal paths that were frequently traveled or, or water sources. It's still a big territory to have to consider in terms of where you're going to place your camera, where you're going to dedicate your yeah. time. So since the leopard was so elusive to begin with, talk about you know making the decision of where to put the camera traps to increase the likelihood that you would be able to make even one image. Yeah, for sure. I mean, so many of my projects nowadays are really this collaborative approach where really I'm relying on these people that live with this, with these wildlife, you know, these wild animals, really understand them better than I could do just as a visitor visiting for a few months. You know, these people have spent their entire lives with these creatures. And really, I'd have no chance often of getting what I want without teaming up with them, you know, be that scientists or researchers, guides or members of the local community. And in the case of this project, my sort of first point of contact was this safari company called Lake Hippia Wilderness Camp. And I'd heard that people there had occasionally been seeing this black leopard. So they were the people I contacted. And then they introduced me to the landowner, uh, this lady called Louisa. And it was her and her team of uh, rangers that had been seeing this leopard on her land. Um, and so I was introduced to them. They showed me around. And it turned out they'd also been showing some leopard researchers from San Diego Zoo, the you know, helping them record this leopard as well for their sort of scientific papers. And so when I got there, I was able to speak to all these people, find out you know where they'd been seeing black leopard every now and then, where the scientists had managed to record it as well. And so from that, I was able to build up a rough picture of you know, the sort of areas this leopard was most likely to be frequenting. Uh, But then also from my point of view, I was wanting to pick compositions for my photos that were obviously uh, sort of artistic and and striking and things and areas that I knew I could light dramatically, that sort of thing. And so I was really pulling in all of this sort of information, trying to pick the sites that would both give me the most pleasing photos, but also the most chance of... uh, of capturing the shot I want. And often there is a bit of a trade-off between going for a particular photo that I want to get, but maybe it's not going to be the most productive location. So in the early stages, I was perhaps choosing places that were slightly more 
uh, likely to get the leopard. But then as the project pro- progressed, I started to you know, try and get more and more difficult shots where the, where the chances were lower. Um, talk about why this particular cat is is rare because it's not like it's another species. It's still within the you know this family mm-hmm. of you know a- animals. But what what results in in that particular particular look and and how rare is it at, is it actually? So leopards themselves, you know, they're not particularly endangered, but they are very elusive and often they can be in an area and you just have no chance of seeing them because they are so shy, also quite nocturnal. Um, so just seeing them can be pretty tricky. But then black leopards are a basically a gene mutation, like uh, it's a recessive gene. And so in areas where the gene is more prevalent, you get a higher um, incidence of black leopards, but it's still because it's a recessive gene, even if both the parents have the gene, there would only be like a 25% chance of one of their cubs uh, being black. And these black leopards are generally recorded in areas that are more thickly forested. So places like Thailand and Malaysia, the leopards range is all the way through Africa and Asia. And yeah, these thickly forested areas where it's dark, maybe being a black cat in those situations uh, could even be an advantage. And so maybe that gene has prevailed more there and, and black leopards are more common in those habitats. But in Africa, particularly arid areas and open areas uh, where, you know, there's a lot of pale grass and, uh, you know, not a lot of these deep shadows, you know, being a black animal in, in the, those sort of places is not really an advantage at all. And so I think for that reason, black leopards are much rarer in Africa than, than in the forested areas um, in other parts of the world. So, I mean, I've read different things about how many black leopards there might be in the world. Um, and in some places, I think it's as high as 25%, but I think more on average, it might be more around 11%, but probably less than that in Africa. And, you know, in Lycipia, this area I was working, there might be a handful at any one time. I mean, that in com- combined with how shy the, the leopards are, you know, very few people uh, see them, even if you spend your whole life in that part of the world. For most of the local people in the area that I was working, this was the first time they'd seen a black leopard and they'd been there their whole lives. So, you know, they still are incredibly rare. There's an old joke about, you know, if you want a channel, try to photograph a black cat in a dark room. And this is about <laughs> as close as you can get. <laughs> oh yeah that was a that was a real challenge and like l- just figuring out how to light it because it really reflected so little light at all i was getting normal leopards and black leopards on this on, on my camera traps and i was finding to to actually be able to see the shape of the leopard's body i was having to expose two stops brighter than for a spotted leopard just because it just hardly reflected anything it was just those eyes that you would see often so how would you contend with that? Because you have a, a trap set up and you really don't know what's going to pass in front of the camera. And with a lot of the images, with some of the images, you are not only trying to get the cat, but you're also trying to get some of the environment, the ambient light. Yeah. So if you're having, ex, you know, overexposed two stops just for the cat, I saw that you had other images of other, of other wildlife, mm-hmm. including other, other cats. So how do you sort of contend with that? I was always primarily going for the black leopard so all my settings were really optimized for him and then you know other stuff came along and I, and I you know got a decent photo that was a bonus but yeah all my settings were really optimized for the black leopard and I was doing a lot with like snoots and stuff so that I wasn't exposing much of the you know foreground and vegetation I was often quite focusing the light just on where the animal would be and the way my camera trap sensors work is I can pick a very tightly defined area uh, where the sensor's pointing and where all the lights focus. And I pretty much know exactly where the animal will be when it triggers the camera. So that does allow me to, to you know, really just uh, you know, focus the light on, on you know, where I expect the animal to be and not, not have it spill out everywhere. Through, through that and, uh, you know, a lot of trial and error, really, I sort of figured out, you know, the best settings. But also shooting in RAW, you know, you do often have a stop or two of leeway if, if the exposure doesn't quite work. You know, you, you've used these traps you know, with elephants and with lions and things like that. What sort of adjustments or changes did you have to make, considering not just the subject, but the environment you were in, and also the fact that you were leaving those traps there for extended periods of time? Mm. Yeah, this was definitely the longest term camera trapping project I'd worked on. Previously, I'd done one that's maybe three months long, but yeah, this, it was actually over a year that my camera traps are running. So that was the biggest change. Um, and yeah, figuring out how to keep them running all year when I wasn't necessarily there. 
I actually ended up uh, working with um, a couple of the local rangers, a guy called Mohammed and another guy called Patrick, and trained them up basically to sort of keep the cameras clean, pick pick up the flashes if they got knocked over or anything like that. And so really it was their help that was crucial to allowing me to keep this on for so long. And then I would then visit, this is in 2019 when we could still travel quite freely. I would go out to Kenya every uh, six weeks to two months really to move the traps around, um, you know, and, and try and get different shots and keep them running that way. Um, and then, yeah, the other part, I guess, is keeping them powered for that long big batteries a few solar panels and things and that that sort of took care of that side of things when you th- when you talk about the, the solar panels that's one of the things i was curious about and it's like because it seemed from reading the book that some of the areas may have been uh, dense with foliage and the weather can be kind of unpredictable so especially with leaving the those things out there for an extended period of time sort of finding a balance between positioning in terms of getting a good shot but also getting enough power so that yeah. if the batteries do die out you 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 do have enough power to, for the camera yeah um well i guess you know this is on the equator so it does get quite a lot of sunlight. And then the other side of it is the camera trap equipment, you know, in order to be usable in all sorts of habitats and ecosystems, it has to be incredibly power efficient. So actually none of it was designed to be used with solar panels and everything from the wireless flash triggers, the flashes, everything has really been optimized to be very you know, as efficient as possible in terms of that power consumption. So really to keep them going for longer periods, you know, you don't need a lot of power out of the solar panel just to keep it basically running indefinitely basically it would be the memory card filling up would probably be the the thing that would limit how long it could keep going you know by that point it would uh, there'd usually be other things as well like termites had somehow got in or or spider had built its web over the lens or something like that so typically you know i only need them to go six weeks or so before i'd come back and usually usually have to move them anyway you had several false starts before you finally got your first photograph, which I'm sure was was kind of disheartening. But tell well, me about you tell me about the moment when you realized yeah. that you, you actually had gotten not only a photograph of it, but a photograph that was usable. That was good. Yeah. So I mean actually in the in the terms of my camera trapping projects to date I'd had so many, I guess, disappointments over the years where you set up really excited about a potential camera trap location, a stunning backdrop, a animal trail that seems busy. You know, you set up and then, you know, weeks go by and you don't capture what you wanted. So I come to view camera trapping like, you know, I have no expectations when I'm checking my camera. Really, with this project, after a couple of nights, I hadn't got the black leopard yet. I got a few other species, actually some quite exciting species like this uh, striped hyena. Obviously, I was checking the cameras, hoping to get the black leopard. But after three or four nights, you know, I really didn't have a big expectation because, yeah, my experiences to date, you know, sometimes it had taken a month or more just to get a photo of a rhino in an area stuffed full of rhinos. So when I did check the camera on, I think it was a fourth day, I really wasn't expecting to see a black leopard on it. And it was the last camera I checked scrolling through and almost just flicking through quickly just to get it done. And then I could close up the camera and head off back to camp. But then I got to this photo and, you know, I almost missed it because the photo was just black and it was only, it was a tiny little DSLR camera screen that I was looking at the back of and it was quite bright light. And I just saw these, you know, these two spots in the middle, basically in this completely black area and, you know, had to do a double take and peer closer. And then it suddenly hit me that they were two eyes in an animal that was completely black in the in the middle of the night. And, um, yeah, it didn't sink in. And it was probably a few days before, before you know, the implications of what I'd captured really did start to sink in. And thereafter, it was just like a dream, particularly as I continued to get photos over, over the next few weeks. What, what did you learn from that first photograph that helped the subsequent images that you captured? in terms of the technical stuff in terms of capturing the cat or where you would need to go and what, you know, and what sort of adaptions you would need to make to get more than one. Obviously the trail where I first got that cat, I realized that that was obviously a productive spot. So I moved some cameras there and the second and third image I got were again on that trail. That first photo is actually an infrared photo. So I wasn't sure how sensitive the the and how shy the leopard was going to be. So some of the camera traps I'd set up were um, infrared converted cameras with infrared flashes. So they are only emitting a sort of invisible infrared light. 
But pretty soon I discovered that he didn't seem to mind the color camera traps at all. So I only kept those infrared camera traps running for a few weeks before I swapped them all for color ones. So most of the pictures thereafter were in sort of full color. He was still a young male when I started photographing him and then following him from for the course of a year. Actually, over that time, his behavior changed quite a lot. You know, he the areas he started to use shifted quite a lot over that time. So really, you know, you sort of, I'd sort of think I... You know, had good spots set that selected and then you know suddenly a few weeks go by and I found I had to move them around so it kind of was this whole learning curve that you know and as the seasons changed as the rains arrived you know his habits would change completely so really it was a case you know all the way through the project of sort of trying to keep tabs on what he was doing and and sort of responding appropriately. What was it like to have a an in-person contact with with him? And how long was it? How long was it after you had made the first image that you had that experience? Yeah, that was incredible. And it, you know, I, as I'd sort of started working on this as a long-term project, you know, I'd obviously really hoped I would eventually see it with my own eyes. But as long as I was getting photos, obviously I was going to keep working on the project. But it was um, in April. I'd started in January, so it was four months into the project, and he'd actually disappeared for. I think it was about three or four weeks. I hadn't got any photos of him, but I had still been getting some quite nice shots of uh, the spotty leopards. So I was still persevering with the project, but I was wondering if he'd been, if he'd moved off completely and I, if I'd actually got my last photo of him. Uh, but I was up at my camera traps um, at dusk. Often I'll go to the camera traps when it's quite dark because it's obviously the best time to be able to preview the lighting and the flashes. So I'll often be up there when it's pretty dark and that's obviously the time that leopards start to move around. And I was up with my camera traps. It had gotten really dark now. And just as I was finishing up with this camera, I shone my flashlight over uh, sort of some rocks about uh, 50 meters away. And I saw these eyes reflecting light back at me. And by the spacing of the eyes, I could be pretty sure it was a leopard. There's not other. There's not that many other animals in this area that have such you know, widely spaced eyes. So I thought it was a leopard, but I thought it was one of the spotty leopards that I'd been capturing on my on my cameras. So I started to slowly uh, go towards it, hoping to get a better view. And as I got closer and closer, the animal still wasn't resolving for me, or I could still just see the light reflected as it was watching me, but I couldn't see the shape of the animal at all. And I then got about halfway closed the distance by about half and that's when the cat started to move and as it moved then all of a sudden I could make it out and it was basically just a black shape cut out from the from the sort of scenery behind that was illuminated by my torch kind of like a silhouette that's when I realized that it was a black leopard and yeah so I mean I don't quite know how long the experience was but I'd probably spent you know a few minutes slowly trying to get close to him and then and then he moved off went into the uh undergrowth and uh, disappeared are they kind of are they pretty skittish about humans yeah leopards are pretty shy usually um so uh, at night they're bolder and because i had the light on him i don't think he could see me um so i guess it's only when he sensed that i was getting closer that he that he moved off but yeah leopards are pretty shy mostly When I've talked to some of my photographer friends recently, some of the best conversations have revolved around recent photo book acquisitions. We were inspired to share why a particular photographer's work had made such an impression on us. It wasn't just that we admired the work, but that the photographer opened our eyes to new choices and different ways of seeing. That's what I hope for with each new photo book I purchase. I'm looking for an experience that will thrill me and will challenge the way I see and make photographs. The best books are the ones that I return to over and over again. Every photographer who I respect and admire has a collection of books that does that for them. It's the reason why I recommend you become a member of the Charcoal Book Club. Whether you are a seasoned collector or just getting started, Charcoal provides an amazing selection of monographs of all genres that nurture your love for great photography. These special first edition books are carefully curated, showcasing some of the best talents in contemporary photography. The production behind these books is top-notch, and it's obvious as you hold your copy in your hands and begin turning the pages. 
If you want to find a new and different way to further propel your photography, the best decision is to become a Charcoal Book Club member today. They offer free shipping to the US, Canada, and the UK. It's subsidized elsewhere. And if you're not feeling that month's selection, you can swap it out for a different one of similar value. Visit their website to see what they have to offer and what you have to look forward to. Join the club at charcoalbookclub.com today and remember to use the code THECANDIDFRAME at checkout to receive a 10% discount on your first membership payment. I know you're big about conservation, but I'm curious in terms of the, you know, the, the, the habitat uh, and the, you know, and, you know, the area in which this cat exists. Because I know that there was a woman whose home was sort of a, a central point from which you mm -hmm. started. Tell me about the area around it. How large is it? Yeah. And who is it protected by? Yeah. So Lycopia is a slightly interesting uh, case in Kenya in that it's not really there's no national parks there. It's a lot of conservancies, so privately owned land. It's got sort of this patchwork of conservancies, and most of these uh, conservancies are either uh, farming or tourism or this sort of mix of both. This corner where the black leopard was actually bordered three different conservancies plus the private land that, uh, you know, Louisa's land, which is where I was mostly based. And, yeah, these, these areas are sort of, private they have security because um you know they do have wildlife they all of them to an extent have tourism people coming to see the wildlife um and then they also have a certain amount of the land um, most most of the time uh, set aside for like cattle grazing and livestock grazing so it is very much mixed use and it's quite a nice example of kind of land being able to support wildlife but also used by local communities for their purposes but yeah, it's a it's, it is a, de a delicate balance, and there's certainly challenges. You know, predators sometimes killing livestock and conflict uh, arising that way. But for the most part, I think local people are very proud of their wildlife, and particularly something special like the black leopard. They they do you know feel that sense of pride, and uh, you know certainly excited about the sort of international fame that this leopard in their area got. So, um, so yeah, mostly they're, they're very much on board with protecting the wildlife. They see the benefits of, of tourism and, and income, you know, coming into the area through, you know, visitors. So it's a delicate balance, but it seems to be working. Your, your picture was the, was the first scientifically, scientific documentation of the, of the leopard in, in a hundred years, though other people had made sort of casual Mm. photographs of of others and yeah. it created quite a stir probably more than you had anticipated yeah tell yeah, us about that sure. yeah certainly couldn't have anticipated it the way it went so the way that all sort of came about is as i said when i got to lycipia it turned out some scientists had also been there um, basically they were researching uh, leopards in the whole of lycipia but then they'd heard about the black leopard and started to record him uh, because it, you know in the scientific record, it was so rare to, to have black leopards in Africa and there was no mention of it, of black leopards in the scientific record uh, for over 100 years. So these scientists, you know, for them, they were able to um, compile a scientific paper revealing the existence of this black leopard uh, to sort of break that streak of 100 years. And it turned out that I got there and started getting my photos before they'd published their results. And so they asked me, you know, can you not publish your photos until we publish our findings? And, you know, maybe we could team up and release our results at the same time. And I let them use some of my photos for their paper. And so it's through my partnership with them that, you know, my photos in tandem with their research, you know, constituted the first scientific documentation of a black leopard in Africa in over 100 years, even though, as you say, you know, other people had been seeing them, obviously, and there were snapshots uh, taken by other, other people uh, over that time. But yeah, so that headline, though, that came out, you know, first documentation in 100 years, plus my very striking photos did just go completely crazy when they were released. And it was it was just mad for a couple of weeks uh, with press all over the world, you know, publishing the pictures. There wasn't I don't think there was a country, you know, where they weren't there wasn't some sort of coverage. And you know, I've got friends all over the world who saw it. So it was pretty crazy, really. And again, that's another part of it that's kind of a bit like a dream, just the way that went. But yeah, thereafter, I then continued to work on the project for the rest of that year and very much kept kept the uh, the photos under wraps and uh, 
and uh, a bit lower key after that. This is not the first time that your images have caused quite a stir. You, you created this sort of contraption in which you had a camera that was on wheels and allowed for amazing proximity to yeah. wildlife, especially elephants and, and lions. And that comes from your, your experience in you know, physics and electronics and having that knowledge that usually isn't available to the average outdoor photographer. Um, talk about applying that, yeah. you know, that background mm -hmm. and it resulting in sort of a, your unique approach to making, to making images. As you mentioned, I sort of have a technical science background and, you know, while I didn't study things like electronics particularly or programming, I think it gave me enough of a technical grounding to then be able to teach myself quite a lot of these things. And so when it came to applying it to my photography, you know, it always started with an end photo in mind. And then it, if I needed to build something to be able to achieve that, then I would do that. So it, back, this is now like 2008, 2009, as I was kind of experimenting with wildlife photography, trying to capture things that were just a bit different that weren't, you know, the commonplace wildlife photos. I got really obsessed, really interested in getting closer, using a wide angle lens to get a much more intimate perspective. And it was a perspective that really I fell in love with. It was it, you know, it felt like you could lean into the picture and touch the subject, you know, uh, be, being uh, close up and wide angle. And so I'd done this with animals that I could crawl up to, animals like penguins and meerkats. But I really dreamed of doing it with these big charismatic animals in Africa. And obviously I couldn't crawl up to them. So for me, the solution was kind of uh, obvious to try and build a remote control buggy, put my camera on that and use that to get the camera close. And so I decided just to try it. Uh, I taught myself what I needed to learn in terms of sort of remote control, hobby remote control stuff, built the buggy, took it out to Tanzania. And that first, that first trip got just enough to prove the concept. Uh, the camera was destroyed after two days by a lion, but I, I sort of learned my lesson, learned that you know if I could lion proof it, um, I would be able to get some pretty intimate <laughs> images of lions. You know, it was then a couple of years before I uh, revisited it with a lion-proof version, managed to get the lion photos. And, yeah, they, they were, you know, well-received and widely published. And ever since, really, I've come back to that the beetle cam uh, when I've wanted that close-up perspective. So, again, when I started photographing wildlife with stars behind, the beetle cam, again, gave me that perfect perspective looking up at the animal with the sky behind. And so every few years it seems i i, I end up uh, finding another application for it that i guess inventiveness and willingness to i guess build equipment then led to me creating my camera trap system which is what i ended up applying to this uh, black leopard project and you know nowadays yeah if ever i've got a photo that i can't think of any way to to create with the uh, uh, existing equipment then i'll happily you know try and hack something together to to sort of do what i need it to do that's quite a skill that you can put on your cv can make things lion proof <laughs> yeah well that was a challenge and actually yeah even the ones that were lion proof weren't particularly it's it, the latest version which i created just last year uh, is now completely metal and so far hasn't hasn't uh, suffered any um, sort of uh, maulings but uh, it's been quite a long a long process to try and uh, to make these things robust enough when you're thinking about, you know, the things you want to do next in terms of different subject matter or different regions that you want to explore, mm. are you thinking about, is part of the allure, the challenge that that particular choice provides you? Is that part of the yeah, sort definitely. of the excitement for you? I guess it comes down to showing people things that they haven't seen before. So maybe it's going to some quite maybe obscure place that maybe is just opening up and I can see there's an opportunity to, to go uh, take photos there that, that are, yeah, people haven't seen before, or it's a species or an idea I have for how I can photograph it maybe at night or maybe in some other way that would result in something, you know, fresh and different. And so, and also that, you know, the, there are places that I just want to see or animals that I just really want to focus on and, now that my leopard project's finished, I've decided I'm going to revisit lions because they're a subject that I sort of have neglected for quite a few years now. And uh, they're one of the subjects that you know, I first, I guess, became known for with those early beetle cam photos. And I feel now with the 
technology and my sort of ideas for, for taking photos at night i feel it's worth uh, now revisiting lions and hopefully i'll be able to get something you know particularly at night uh, that might be a bit different one of the interesting things about your work is that is the the time involved not just in setting things up and planning but in terms of just being patient and waiting to see whether or not you get anything and yeah. uh, you know i know there was a moment in there where you weren't getting something and and, and the idea was well do i move do I do I uproot and move this somewhere else? And yeah. you know, for me as a street photographer, I often have that thought. But sometimes I'm only my span of time is probably fifteen minutes to forty five minutes. Yeah, know? not not days, weeks, and months. Um, <laughs> tell tell me about you know those considerations where you've got everything set up the way you've done as much research as you can, and now it's just serendipity and luck that you're trying to rely on to give you something tell me about those moments where you're really hard pressed to make that decision it's funny camera trapping is like that you know you can increase your chances by leaving stuff for longer you can increase your chances by setting up more camera traps and you can increase your chances by i guess really understanding the subject or at least working with people who really understand the subject but at a certain you know at a certain point you just have to decide you know am i going to keep trying to improve on this photo or am I going to either draw a line under the project or, or keep going with it? On the other side of the coin, the good thing about camera trapping is you can set up those cameras and then leave them running while you go off and do other things. And so often I would it'd be with the cameras for a few days and then I'd actually be go off and go to a different part of Kenya and work on some something else while those camera traps are running. So it's not like for that whole year, I'm just sat there tending my camera traps. And so I was able to sort of revisit them frequently, but actually do other things. And really, you know, with something so exciting as this Black Leopard, you know, I couldn't really imagine ever stopping the project, you know, as long as there was a chance that I could still get something different, some new photos, and I was going to, you know, it's worth it keeping keeping those cameras running just to see what I could get. And indeed, after COVID, I went back out there and reset up some cameras and got a few new shots um, uh, because it, yeah, it turns out he is still around roughly the same area. And I think, you know, yeah, I just love him as a subject so much that I think I will probably never, never quite end end it. Uh, but, you know, obviously my focus will then shift. And I guess something I've learned really since that year in Zambia is that you really do need to put in the time to, to start getting, you need to start taking your work to the next level. Once you visit a place, you might go there for two weeks even, you know, that's only just a the start of a project often that's when you then can go home think about the place or the subject you were photographing and then start to come up with you know interesting ideas maybe to try and get something a bit different and so often now i'll be revisiting places time and time again as i'm trying to build build a, a portfolio of pictures and typically now i'll focus on on a project for a year or two uh, with a view to maybe then doing a, another book at the end of it and yeah there might be smaller projects in between but but that's where i've sort of found that i like to work is really just immerse myself in one thing at a time and keep going with it so what is your photographic business uh, uh made up of i know that you teach workshops and you um, license your images and exactly yeah you know how does that how does that look yeah so um i've pretty much experimented with so many different things over the years and that's i guess one of the hallmarks of what i like to do is you know i'll try everything and see what sticks and sort of run with that uh nowadays workshops aren't really a big part of what i do i was running one or two a year uh just to just for variety really but you know building a business around it you really need to commit to it and it wasn't really for me so i'm happy to do a few but no what i really focus on is my contraptions company so those products I created, those devices I created for my own photography, the camera traps, I then turned those into products for other photographers as well. So uh, that's um, a, you know, quite a big focus of mine when I'm not traveling is is building that business up and developing new products and equipment for that. And you know, for my projects like this Black Leopard project are doing really the marketing for that business because I'm using the contraptions equipment and sort of showing what you can get with it. So uh, it's very closely, obviously, linked to my photography. So that's the sort of contraption side. And then on my own photography side, as I mentioned, I'm now trying to basically just work on long-term book projects. So I'll work on a project for yeah a couple of years with a view to doing a book at the end of it. And really with my own photography projects, I kind of see them now as as brand building more than more than how I make my living. And, you know, I can work on a speculative 
speculative project like the Black Leopard. And I don't have to worry really if there's not a positive ROI on it, because at the end of the day, I have got my contraptions to fall back on. But it does allow me to be much freer about, you know, the projects I do work on. And yeah, I don't have to really worry if if it's you're going to make a lot of money at the end of it because you know, I'm lucky now in that the sort of contraptions thing has sort of given me that freedom to to an extent. Well, you know, with the, with the contraptions business, you have two uh, young children you're raising along with your wife. Mm-hmm. Um, tell me about, you know, planning, you know, planning ahead in terms of when you do want to travel, when you want to spend extensive time. I know that you as a family spent time in, in, in Africa uh, during mm-hmm. part of the time that you were working on this particular project but tell me just like overall what it, what does that look like yeah that's definitely been one of the biggest challenges i've faced over the years is how to allocate that time between you know, traveling into the, the wilds where you sort of cut off keeping contraptions running and growing and obviously spending time with family and so we were quite i guess intentional about how we set up the projects in africa and that we did decide to focus on kenya uh, sort of get a more permanent setup there in that we bought a car and leave a lot of gear out there. And then my wife then became, she's a doctor. She became a locum, which allows her to basically freelance. So she can basically not book work for long periods. And it means we can spend pretty much the entire school holidays out in Africa as a family together. So that gives me you know a good three or so months out in the field without necessarily being apart from my family. On the contraption side, really the sort of key that unlocked it all uh, was when my brother then came on board and he was actually able to start running contraptions day to day and actually that then freed me up to to sort of go off grid if I needed to and so yeah it's sort of been a quite a I guess journey and sort of figured out one step at a time but you know there's certainly been times like 2016 for example I hardly traveled at all that year because we just had a baby contraptions was taking so much of my time and really uh, my photography st- sort of came to a standstill and uh, obviously then COVID again, that was another sort of thing where suddenly the photography, but fortunately, you know, the photography projects ended, but fortunately I had the contraption stuff to put my energies into. So yeah, I guess it's sort of, I guess, remaining flexible in a way. And uh, that's, that's the key. Yeah, you mentioned having uh, COVID providing you ample time to, to write and put out this book. Yeah. But uh, has there been a particular place in mind that you've, after all, you know, nine or 10 months or however long it's been for you in terms of being subject to COVID, you're thinking about, I can't wait to go, go to a particular place? Yeah. Well, as I said, I sort of got my setup in Kenya with my car and stuff. And I was lucky that in November, I was able to get out to Kenya. And I've actually spent now two months um, since COVID struck, I managed to spend two months out in Kenya, which really recharged my batteries and got started on this new lion project. And so now, now that I've sort of started this lion project, you know, I'm kind of raring to get on with it and, and get back out there again. But it's right now things are, are getting difficult again. So I don't quite know how long how long that's gonna that's gonna go on. Hopefully, within a within a couple of months, I'll be able to get back out there and keep working on that. We talked earlier about the cha- challenge that you like that about about your work. Having had photographed the lions before, what are you hoping to do differently with this with this latest work? I'll be working in a couple of different areas. One of which um, in the Rift Valley is pretty remote and quite stunning scenery, really. And I'm hoping that by photographing lions in that scenery, it's not the photos aren't going to be the familiar photos of lions that you see from elsewhere. You know, you, you can sort of get a sense from the from the scenery that, you know, this is a you know, very harsh, arid environment. So in one sort of strand, it's going to be trying to work in some of these more unusual places. And then also, as I mentioned, trying to do a lot more at night. So lions are essentially nocturnal in their habits. Most of what they do happens at night. And I feel there's a huge opportunity to try and, uh, you know, capture more of, of that side of their lives and really, you know, show off, you know, what it is lions do when they're, when they are in their element. And that's, that's the night. How are, how are your images used? Are they used by some of the conservancies that you work with? Are they licensed by, you know, commercial properties? How, how do you sort of leverage their existence? I'm mostly taking them with a with an idea of doing the book at the end of it, but of, often I am partnered with a conservation organisation, you know, tourism entity, or something when I'm actually capturing the photos. So often I'll share the photos with them. So, uh, for example, my elephant project, which was the one before, I was partnered with the Savo Trust in in Savo, and we are very much working together in that uh, they 
pretty much I wouldn't have got any of the photos without their help. And then, you know, I let them use some of the images. I basically uh, put together a book that really communicated their goals and, and uh, you know, did that very much in partnership with them. And so, you know, if I could do those two things, you know, there's some sort of conservation um, outcome that's benefiting from my photos and I'm able to then, you know, work towards a book. That's, um, that's most of what I aim to do. Um, you know, occasionally I am licensing pictures, mostly for editorial use and you know, selling prints and things. But that's very much something I'm more passive about. Um, you know, I've really focused on building up the body of work for the book at the end of it. This book is not just about the Black Leopard. It's really about, you know, your life up until this point, your early fascination mm-hmm. with travel and with, you know, with wildlife and eventually you know, picking up a camera and then finding a way for it to, for you to become a, a working professional photographer. And a lot of those ideas can, you know, and those memories can exist in your head, but there's some, a, di- a very different experience when you sit down and start putting it to paper. Mm. Um, as you started telling your story on, on, on the page, was there anything that you rediscovered or, or that surprised you? Yeah, it's, it's funny. Cause you know, this book, I, I actually intended it to just be a photo book of the Black Leopard pictures. But as I mentioned previously, you know, suddenly as the project was progressing, it did feel like so many strands of my life had come together for this project uh, that, you know, and, and when I sort of was talking to the publishers as well, you know, they they recognized it and, you know, encouraged me to actually make this book the whole story leading up to the Black Leopard. And so, you know, just tell that story. I did start right at the beginning and it was really quite a challenge to, figure out what to put in it, what was relevant and what to leave out. And that's one of the reasons it took me so long to write it was to to really try and boil down just the key parts along that journey that then led to uh, to the Black Leopard. And uh, yeah, so it was certainly, I think it would be very hard for me to, to actually do it had it been a non-COVID year when I was traveling here, there and everywhere. But actually having that lack of distractions, lack of temptations to travel, you know, just being at home, living a very simple existence. And actually that gave me a lot of time and space to really condense my thoughts, I guess, and uh, then put them down on paper. And uh, I certainly enjoyed that because in my normal life or my non pre-lockdown life, I just would never have had the time. So uh, being able to really take my time with this book is probably, um, yeah, one of the things I enjoyed most about it. You didn't make any sort of um, have some a different perspective on on in your life. Um, I don't know. Like I, I guess the way it suddenly all came together for this project. You know, maybe I didn't even recognize it as it was happening, but then starting to look back at it and consider the book. You know, it did suddenly. You know, how all these different projects I'd worked on from the animals at night, the camera traps, the beetle cam, the the Savo project, how it all suddenly came together for me you know, being in the right place at the right time to get this black leopard. I think that really crystallized as I was, as I was, you know, putting the book together and uh, yeah, it's, it kind of, it did, you know, it's then to culminate in these amazing pictures, you know, it's, 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 I guess for me, like, you know, how do I even follow on from this? You know, like uh, what, <laughs> what will I ever find subject wise and, you know, opportunity wise that will uh, be a worthy follow up. So uh, that's now the, the next challenge. Well, I'm sure the universe will find a way. Hopefully that should. Well, my last question, which I ask each guest is I ask them to recommend another photographer for our listeners to discover and explore. And it can be anyone someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So who would that one photographer be and why? Oh my gosh. There's so many photographers I admire, particularly, you know, those that I guess broke ground in camera trapping and, and wildlife photography Uh, to pick just one is pretty difficult. Um, I think in the context of this project, it has to be Steve Winter, uh, who's an at-geo photographer who really, uh, took camera trap photography, I guess, to new to new places with some of his projects that, you know, from 10, 10, 20 years ago, photographing snow leopards in the Himalayas and tigers and and uh, various other creatures. So, yeah, I think, you know, if you sort of enjoy seeing my pictures of the of the black leopard and things, I think you'll also enjoy looking at uh, Steve Winter's pictures. And yeah, he's just done some incredible work over the years. Well, Thank you very much, Will. I really enjoyed I'm enjoying your book and, and really thank enjoyed you. having a chance to talk with you. Yeah, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. 
And thanks to you who have financially supported The Candid Frame. Your belief in what we do means the world to us and has helped us so much. If you haven't yet, you can help contribute to our work by becoming a Patreon supporter today. You can do that by contributing $5, $10, $20 or more a month by visiting patreon.com forward slash The Candid Frame. Just $5 a month from you makes a big difference. Thank you so much for your kindness and support. Thanks to Will for joining us. You can find out more about him and his work by visiting willbl.com. If you're a devoted listener and subscribe to the show, write us a review on whatever servers you listen to podcasts. Those reviews have allowed us to grow. And remember, you can support the show by contributing to our Patreon effort or make a one-time or recurring donation via PayPal. Thanks to Cosme Perez, Caitlin Just, Ayapan Nair, Sun Hill Sippy, and Brenda Barkey for their recent contributions. I'm also going to be leading my Using Your Life to Jumpstart Your Photography online workshop this summer. Find out more by clicking on the link on the website in the show notes or visit nobechicreative.com. We also provide a series of ebooks on photography available for purchase on our website. It's my way of sharing my experience and knowledge in another way for you to support the show. And if you can't find every episode on the show, on whatever service you listen to podcasts, download the Candid Frame app, which is available for both Apple iOS and Android. And because of your generosity, it's free to download and use. No additional purchases are required. The Candid Frame's audio engineer is Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com. The show's senior producer is Cynthia Parker. And our music is from Kevin McLeod, whose royalty-free music can be found at incompetech.com. And this is Ibadian X, and this is The Candid Frame.